the Spirit of God. Just notice that each person of the Trinity is involved in that work. Let's look at them. Firstly, God the Father is involved. We use the word God speaks very casually, but what does it mean that God speaks? What does it actually mean? Have a look at the very beginning, the first words of the Bible, Genesis 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. I don't know if you know, but the ancient peoples of the world had their own creation stories as well as the Jews. And some of the gods of the ancient world created the world in various odd ways. So one of them, for example, vomited the universe into being. Can you actually believe that? Some of them did it by procreating. And there are some stories that are so gruesome that I won't even tell you. I'll tell you over the meal if you, if you like. <laughs> but in contrast to those legends and stories, the God of the Bible creates by his word. And that tells us something about God. It tells us something about his word. It tells us that when God speaks, he acts. So notice in verse 3, and God said, let there be light and there was light. God is not expressing a desire that there should be light and there's some other person in the universe who then goes and switches on the light. By saying, let there be light, God actually creates the light. This is the way he creates. God's speech and his action are one and the same thing. And what that means is that God and his word are very, very closely related. God and his word are very closely related. Uh, Just have a look at Psalm 29 on the sheet. And you know how... Hebrew poetry works, it works by putting kind of the same idea in parallel. Well, look at the words of underline. The word of the, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. God's word is the expression of his will. And God is so closely aligned to his word that the psalmist can put the Lord and his word in parallel as one. In particular, it is through his word that God relates to his creatures. Now, some of you are going to be looking at Genesis 15 tonight, I believe. Is that right? And you're going to see in Genesis 15, God establish a very special relationship with Abraham. I'm not going to steal the thunder of the overview, guys, but just have a look. In Genesis 15, God brings a message to Abraham, which is very, very hard to believe. A message that is actually impossible to believe, humanly speaking. Abraham chooses to believe the word of God. And look at what we read in Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. In other words, as Abraham receives the word of God and takes it at face value... He is now in a right relationship with God. That is how God relates to people. And that is why in Christianity, the word of God is so important. As we treat the word, we treat God. If we trust his word, 
We trust God and that brings us into right relationship with him. We actually come to know God by listening to his word. Well, what about the son and the word? Secondly, well, you'll know that the story of the Old Testament is the story of the progress of that promise that God made to Abraham. So the Old Testament is a big and complex book. We're spending a year studying it in Bible overview if you're in that group. But it can be really kind of boiled down to the story of God's promise to Abraham and its various moments of fulfilment and disappointment all the way through to the end of the story. (coughs) And then in the New Testament, one thing happens to fulfill the whole story. Jesus comes as the answer to all the hopes and dreams, as we sing in that Christmas carol, of all the years. And so look at what we read in Hebrews chapter one. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. That's the Old Testament story. But in these last days, that's now, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. So where does Jesus the Son fit into God's revelation? Well, he is the point of it all. He is the one who fulfills the Old Testament. And so you can't come to know God without knowing Jesus Christ, without coming through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, God's action and his word have been connected. Now, God's word and his Son are connected in the same way. So to give you an example, in the Old Testament, you might go to a temple, you might speak to a priest, you might sacrifice a goat. These are all ways of enacting your, work, your knowledge of God. Now we don't do any of those things. We come instead to Jesus. He is the embodiment of the word of God. John puts it like this in John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So now all knowledge of God comes through his final word, which is Jesus Christ. There is no knowledge of God without Jesus. And now as we read the Bible, all of the Bible makes sense in the light of Jesus and all the Bible explains Jesus. So Luke 24 verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the Old Testament, Jesus explained to his disciples what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Okay, so the Father speaks the word and action results. The Son is the embodiment of that revelation of God. Well, what about the Spirit? What role does the Spirit play in all this? Well, turn over the page. And what we find is that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Spirit of God accompanies the Word of God. The Spirit of God accompanies the Word of God, gives it power. So have a look at Psalm 33, verse 6. By the Word of the Lord were the heavens made their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Or where is the word spirit there? The word spirit is in the word breath. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word breath, ruach, if you're interested, and spirit, 
are the same. Ruach in the Old Testament, pneuma in the New Testament. Remember Dan's pneumatic drill? A drill powered by air? Some of us who are not engineers are thinking, how can you have a drill powered by air? I thought drills were powered by electricity. But some of you understand this and can explain it to the non-engineers of us over the meal after I've told you about the Babylonian creation epic, which is (laughs) too disgusting to mention. But the point is, the pneumatic drill is powered by the breath, the air, of wherever it comes from. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Spirit of God is the breath of God. They're one and the same thing. Have a look at it in these two passages, which are parallel here in Colossians 3.16. We see Paul saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then look at it in 5.18, Ephesians 5.18, the same passage, the parallel passage. But this time, instead of saying, let the word dwell in you richly, Paul says, let the spirit dwell in you richly. And as Sam showed us this morning, if you were here, that changes the way we think about singing. Instead of thinking of singing as this great sort of experience of praise and worship where I get to feel something, actually, this is about the word dwelling in us. It's about teaching. And the role of the spirit is to bring the word to us. To be filled with the word is to be filled with the spirit. Now, that connection then comes out in the whole Bible. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 and following, where Peter says, And we have the words of the prophets made more certain, and you'll do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, Peter is now getting to explain to us how the words of the Bible are the words of God. And he's saying that the Bible authors wrote down the words and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, verse 21. That phrase carried along is used in the book of Acts to describe the wind blowing a ship along at sea. So the people who wrote the Bible did not have this kind of feeling that they were writing the Bible. It's just that God in his sovereignty, the spirit of God in his sovereignty, moved them to write down exactly what God wanted them to write. Or have a look at 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There is that word, God breathed. A word that includes the the, the pneuma word, the spirit word. And so when you're looking at the Bible, it's not that God has breathed something into the Bible. It's that God has breathed the Bible out. Let me give you an illustration and again... Dan's already alerted us to this. But let me give you a mental break while I I try and blow up this balloon. I'll give you a little um, secret about me, actually. Um, I'm scared of balloons. I I actually find them really terrifying. I hate the the idea that they'll kind of pop in your face. Is that really pathetic? 
Anyone else have that particular pho- balloon phobia? Yes. Hey, but I'm going to be very brave. Thank you, Kim. <laughs> See why I don't like balloons. <laughs> I seem to remember Joseph is not scared of balloons. I remember you blowing up massive balloons at NYC, and I was thinking, hey, you're a very brave guy. <laughs> but here is my illustration. So this, this balloon is like the Bible in the sense that if you look at it, you don't think, that's an inspired balloon. But it's inspired in that it's been created by my breath. Bit of a, I was hoping that would fly somewhere, but it's not, not very powerful. So there's, there's the illustration. The Bible is like the balloon in that it's the result of God's breath. It's breathed out by God's breath. And so that tells us how, how we treat the Bible. When we open the Bible, when we read it, when we hear it, what we are listening to are the very words of God breathed out. Now, next week, we will see how in history the original words have actually been preserved for us today, because that is a very interesting story. But the theological point is that God's spirit supervised in history the writing of those words So what we have in front of us is exactly what God intends. Okay, there's understanding the God of word. Well, let's turn secondly to applying this and see what difference it makes trusting the word of God. I've just got three examples and the third one is the one we'll spend most time on. Firstly, it means that we get to enjoy God's power. We get to enjoy God's power as we do God's work. See, God continues to reveal himself through the word. It's not that he just revealed himself once and now this is some kind of dead letter. God continues to work through his word. Have a look at Romans 10, 17 on the sheet. Consequently, Paul says, faith comes from hearing and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Now, if you think about it, That ought to be a life-changing principle. How are you going to serve God? How are we going to do God's work in this world? How are we going to grow churches? How are we going to reach the campuses for Christ? How are your friends going to be able to hear the gospel and come to know God? Well, they're going to have to hear the word. Spiritual life in this world comes from the spirit of the living God working through his word. And so if you're going to do God's work, if you're going to experience God's power, if you're going to persevere as a Christian to the end, it's going to be through the word. This means that Bible teaching is going to be key. It's not the only thing Christians do, but it's going to be at the heart of a spirit-empowered church. And if you are going to have a, a ministry, a service to God, then, of course, there are lots of things that we can do. But one way or another, the word, of, the word of God has got to be the output. This is why so many things you'll have noticed about our church are the case, that we give central space to opening God's word on Sunday mornings. Not because we just like to study the Bible, not because we're just that type of people, but because we want to listen to God speak. 
We want to listen to our Heavenly Father address us. We want to get our minds convinced about his agenda. And we want to know him and know the Lord Jesus Christ better. And so I hope that if you're just beginning the Christian life, or you're kind of beginning to take it seriously, perhaps for the first time, having arrived at university, I hope you'll have a long ministry with confidence in the Bible at the heart of it, because that will be a fruitful ministry. I want to start now. Exercise those muscles. Bring the Bible to your friendships. Open the Bible with a friend over a drink. Um, Come to the campus Bible talk and let your friends hear the Bible, all those sorts of things, and experience the power of God at work. Secondly, it means we can experience God's grace very, very powerfully. See, sometimes people are looking for an experience, aren't they? At what we sometimes call the, the soul survivor experience, you know, the, the big crowded room and the smoke and the mirrors and the lights and the music and the, the bass amp sort of reverberating in your ribcage, that kind of thing. I love all that. I love you going to, I used to love going to rock concerts and punk concerts when I was younger and tell you that about over dinner as well if you like if you're interested you're probably not that interested but I can still tell you (laughs) but those great experiences of being in the Manchester Apollo while the Stranglers were booming out their fantastic music when I was 18 19 that's not a spiritual experience it's just an experience that anybody can have the experience of the spirit is the one Peter describes here in 1 uh, Peter 1.22. To be actually born again. To have your life so transformed. Your mind so changed and convinced by the gospel. That you can actually describe it as a new birth. And you can actually start to love people who you never thought you would have anything to do with. Verse 22. Born in a way that is impossible to create through any human power. That is the experience that is unsurpassed in this life. To actually know that you have a Father in heaven. To be convinced that Jesus has died and risen again. To have that certain future. And if you listen to the sort of songs that Christians sing, you'll... See the amazement of this. Oh, for a thousand tongues, Charles Wesley wrote. He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead received. The mournful broken hearts rejoice, the humble poor believe. That is the power of God's word. Well, let's turn over the page and look at one final example, which is to answer the question, what should I do? We want to know God's will in our decisions. What house should I live in in second year? What person should I marry and live with for the rest of my life? What job should I do? What career should I pursue? How should I use my time? What should I do after university? Should I take that gap year? Should I do ministry training course? Should I go on that sandwich uh, year in industry? Should I learn another language? Should I join the band? Should I join that team? What does God want me to do with all these things? And so that brings us to the question of God's guidance, following God's will. 
Well, I think there are two main ways that Christian answer these questions. And there's two little circles on the diagram. We're going to add to these as we go along. And this is what I call the bullseye view, first of all. On the outside of the circle, God has revealed his moral will. Yeah, that's right. God has revealed his moral will. That is, he's told us certain things to do. So when it comes to looking for a job, there are certain things that you're free to do. There are certain things that you're not free to do because God has forbidden them, like being a drug dealer or a bank robber, or in my case, to follow my ancestors and become a pirate. Certain things that would be fun, but are not allowed because God has said stealing and murder and all that kind of thing are wrong. But once we've established that, we still want to answer the question, what does God want me to do? And that is a little dot in the middle. And many a Christian approaches it with the expectation that God is going to give us the answer to that question exactly. God's will is that John must marry Jenny. God's will is that James must become a lawyer. God's will is that Rebecca must be a missionary in this part of the world. Or as someone told me fairly recently, God led me to buy this particular car. And if those specific choices are not discerned, then we feel that we're missing out on the will of God, maybe even disobeying him. That is the bullseye view of the Bible. And I think many, many Christians live their lives burdened by that idea. Sorry, that's the second. Oh, no, sorry, Chloe. Yeah, we missed the thing. OK, there's the, there's the second arrow. You've already got it. You're a step ahead of me. OK, now, this is what I think the Bible actually teaches. This circle is a little bit more complicated. On the outside, you've got God's sovereign will. Because actually, God does have a will about all of those things I mentioned. He actually does have a plan for all of those things, including the particular car that my friend bought. But... He doesn't promise to reveal it. And he certainly doesn't reveal it in the Bible. But God does rule over those things. Now, just a a little footnote on this. This does not mean that you should not pray about those important decisions. And it doesn't mean that God cannot answer those prayers. And it doesn't mean there won't be occasional moments of clarity where things slot into place and things that seemed sort of fuzzy and confused before now suddenly look very very clear because you've prayed about it and God has answered your prayers I'm not saying that cannot happen but one of the problems with seeking God's will is that we start to look for the strange and inexplicable the little promptings the little coincidences you know someone mentioned a a a Range Rover and they mentioned it again and so that must be God's will John Friday this is a true story Emma and I were nearly killed twice by the same person in the same car. We're in Coniston Village, went for a walk, beginning of the walk, someone nearly ran us down in a petrol station and it was a beige Volkswagen Polo. And then about four hours later, we were nearly run down again in the centre of the village by the same car. How weird is that? Now, what do we make of that? Well, someone doesn't like us. Someone obviously doesn't like us. There's no no question about that. But is God telling us something? Is that a... God moment? My point is, we shouldn't be looking for these little coincidences and clues out of the ordinary 
Because actually, if you think about it, all moments are God moments, aren't they? Because God, Jesus teaches us in Matthew 10, doesn't let a sparrow fall to the ground without it being God's will. And the search for guidance often limits this amazing rule, rule of God to the odd little moments, the coincidences, the funny little feelings. Where actually I think God is much kinder than that in the way he reveals himself. And so the second line of the circle is God's revealed will. This includes God's moral will, as we've already discussed. But it also includes the revelation of what God is doing in the world. In particular, the revelation of his mission, what his purpose is, what God's priority is for all people to hear about Jesus. And in the centre of the circle, the third inner circle is wisdom and freedom. Notice it's not a bullseye, but it's a broad circle where God gives us tremendous freedom to exercise wisdom, to make choices with the intelligence and the reason that he has given us and the wisdom that we share in a church family. So I think the best thing is now just to apply this with two examples to see how this works out. Um, If you're interested in the topic of what should I do for a career and ministry, second and third years come to Spur at the end of November. Joe will tell you more about that in due course. But in this case, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk instead about two things. What shall I eat and who should I marry? Now, the first example might seem a little bit uh, silly, but I use it just by way of example to work through uh, this and then we'll get to the serious point about marriage. What should I eat? Well, take the outer circle first, the outer circle being God's sovereign will. What I will tend to eat for my diet will be determined by where I live in the world, by the time of year it is, by the economic state of society and, of course, by my own personal choice and preferences. So if I grew up in northern Alaska, I would probably have grown up eating pickled herring and seal blubber. I'm really glad I didn't grow up in northern Alaska for that reason. But seeing as I live in Lancaster, I'm going to grow up on fish and chips and pies and things like that. What about God's revealed will? What does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says a couple of things. Uh, 1 Timothy 4 says uh, this, that all things are to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God creates is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. This actually tells us a lot about food, doesn't it? It tells us that everything is okay to eat for for the Christian and I can give thanks. And beyond that, it doesn't matter. If I eat fish and chips, I'm very thankful. If I eat spag bol, I'm very thankful. But God is not telling me any more specifically than that. I can eat both of those things with a clear conscience and with thankfulness. And in fact, if I stop and think about all that has taken place to make those meals possible, fish, battered, deep fried, chips, potatoes, chopped up, deep fried, salt and vinegar... All the tradition, anyway, I'm I'm going on, I'll stop there, because everyone's starting to feel hungry, aren't they? (laughs) But it tells me I should be thankful, and it tells me that I live in a world where God is sovereign, and he's given me freedom. 
It also tells me that when it comes to food, I am completely free of religion. The religion of the Jews in the Bible, for example, where Jesus said all food are declared clean. There is nothing you can't eat as a Christian with a clear conscience. And so however popular veganism and vegetarianism has become, don't let anyone tell you it is more godly or Christian or spiritual. Now, there might be reasons that you can mount to be a vegan or vegetarian to do with the environment and money and stage of life and all that kind of thing and personal preference. But it's not more godly, it's not more spiritual because that would be contradicting 1 Timothy 4 and the words of Jesus. But what about wisdom then? Well, within those general guidelines, I am free. If I choose to be a vegan or a veggie, that is a free choice. As long as I do so in a way that is loving other people without stepping on other people's consciences and so on. And the Bible tells me not to be greedy or self-indulgent. And so I'll eat in that way and wise people will eat healthily and so on. Well, there's the example of what to eat. And that is the case for millions of decisions we make every day. It would be crazy, wouldn't it, to start seeking specific bullseye kind of guidance every time you open the fridge. We just get on with it. We apply the broad principles. Now, is that the same with a situation like who should I marry? A big decision, a life-changing decision. Does it work? Well, let's have a look at it. Start with the outer circle, God's sovereignty, once again. Well, who do you know? And where do you live? And what language do you speak? God's sovereignty will lead you in those ways most of the time to marry someone probably a bit like you. Somebody who speaks the same language as you, somebody probably from the same place as you, the same culture. Not always, but generally speaking, he will. And then personality and temperament. You will marry somebody if you get married who is fitting in personality and temperament and somebody you meet. You're not going to marry someone you don't know. God's sovereign will will lead you in that respect. But beyond that, I don't think God's sovereign will in the Bible is going to lead you much further. We're not going to find that bullseye person. So how do we go about finding a marriage partner? Well, look at God's revealed will in the Bible. What does God actually tell us in answer to the question, who should I marry? I think it tells us four things. The person you marry must be of the opposite sex. The person you marry must not already be married. The person you marry must not be closely related. And the person you marry must not be a Christian if you are not a Christian. And if you are a Christian, they must be a Christian. And beyond that, there is no guidance in the Bible. And so you come to the inner circle of wisdom. Other than those four things, you are free. We had a friend who wrote to us. He was a pastor in a church and he had hit sort of mid-30s and he wrote his prayer letter out and he said, after the next cricket season, I'm going to get married. And we thought, Steve, you haven't even got a girlfriend. You, you don't even know any women. How are you going to get married? After the next cricket season, I'm going to get married. Next time we met him, introduced us to his lovely wife. He'd been on an online 
dating thing and he'd found a wife, got married. Now that was actually, back in that day, it was quite unusual to do that. It's actually quite common to do that now. But the point is, you can apply these principles and get married and you wouldn't be breaking any moral commands of the Bible. But what about wisdom? What about that inner circle? Well, that's when you have to start using common sense and wisdom. What kind of person would make a good partner? What kind of person do you want to do God's work with for the rest of your life? Someone who is godly, gospel-hearted, with complementary gifts. And actually, wisdom says, if you want to get married, you can be as fussy or as unfussy as you like. It's up to you. But if you're too fussy, be prepared to stay single. And the advice I was given, which I obviously took, is find someone who is more keen, who is more mature, who is, who is just further on the Christian life than you. Now, I was lucky enough to take that advice and marry a wonderful, uh, godly woman. But if everyone took that advice, there'd be a problem, wouldn't there? <laughs> None of us would ever get married because we'd all be searching for the more spiritual person until we get to Jesus and realise he, he's, you know... He, yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, this is liberating and it's godly. See, the bullseye view sounds like faith. It sounds pious to say, I'm seeking God's will. But if you think about it, it's the opposite of faith. It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of trust in God in the way he has revealed himself. See, God's guidance in the Bible is a bit like his guidance of the people of Israel in the book of Exodus. He was guiding them to the promised land. And God is doing the same for us now. But now he doesn't do it with cloud and fire. He does it through his word, through his promises. And to follow God's will is not to know the answer to all the questions I bring to life. What am I going to do today? And what am I going to do for this, that and the other decision? To follow God's will is to listen to his word. To allow the spirit of God to fill us with his word. So that he sets the direction of our lives. Which is serving him. And being concerned for the things that he is concerned for. Which is the name of Jesus. Going to all nations. If we put that in our sat-nav. That's really all the guidance we need for most questions in life. So let's pray that uh, God will help us to do that. Father, we thank you for revealing your word to us. We thank you that you guide us in every area of life that we need guidance in. And we pray that we'll be people who make our setting, the setting of our lives, the glory and uh, the mission and uh, the progress of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And this will relieve us of the burden of anxiety about what to do. Thank you that you've given us this knowledge, this wisdom in your kindness. Please help us to obey it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.